Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. Continuing on in our series where last week we talked about searching the scripture as a means of grace. Today we're going to be talking about receiving communion as a means of grace. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The truth is there's a number of different places. Jesus at the Last Supper, he uh, institutes this means of grace to saying, do this in remembrance of me. Paul talks, you see it practiced throughout Acts, and then Paul talks about it here in his letter to the Corinthians. So that's where we're going to jump in. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to read 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of remembrance. We thank you for the cup and the bread. And I pray as we unpack that today that we will uh, experience your presence in a powerful way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was sitting in the barber chair getting a haircut, as one does at the barber. And uh, because of our scheduling, I had to take Addie Lee with me. In fact, that's usually how it works now. I pick her up from school, and we head to the, the haircut place and get a haircut, right? And so Addie Lee's with me, and she kind of, they have like some toys in the little waiting area. So she sits in that little waiting area, and she uh, plays with those toys. She plays with my phone. Don't judge me, okay? I need her to be taken care of. Okay, so she, she has this entertainment, and she sits there, and she plays in the lobby while I get a haircut. And so I'm there, and the, I'm, I'm talking, and, and the conversation is flowing, but it kind of comes to a, a, a stopping point, if you will, where the conversation kind of stops and lulls out. And I'm just sitting there, and I look at her, and there's a moment where I'm like, you never have those like out-of-body moments where you see something, and it just takes you back, or you hear an old song, and it takes you back. And I have this moment where I see Eddie Lee playing in the lobby, and I'm immediately taken back to my childhood, where I'm at the barbershop, same situation, playing in the lobby, hanging out with my brother, and my grandfather 
is the one getting a haircut. See, we, we had this tradition of going to get a haircut with grandpa. A lot of times when we think about traditions, we think about the holiday season and the meals we share at Thanksgiving and Christmas. But the truth is our lives are scattered with the traditions all throughout the year. And so for me growing up, one of these was a haircut with grandpa. There was times where where he would even get to check us out of school early. Don't tell my dad. Okay, check us out of school early to take us to get a haircut. And this haircut was so much fun. There's all the, I have tons of like core memories of these haircut experiences. They always involved, yes, the haircut, but they also involved a treat, okay? Usually high sugar, Dairy Queen, ice cream treat, okay? A blizzard, milkshake, whatever it may be. A lot of times it would also include a meal if it happened to fall around mealtime. And so there was always a treat, usually a meal. And I have all these fun memories of grandpa picking us up and we'd have these awesome conversations about life and always being prepared, but it was also fun like I can remember my first time learning of the comb over. You guys know what this is? Okay. All right. My grandfather, always he did his hair similar to mine where like it was brushed over. Right. And then I look up one day and he's getting his hair cut and the hair on this side is short and the hair on this side is like down to his shoulder. And I'm like, hold up. And he's bald on top. And he just combs the whole thing over. And I remember being like, did not know that's how that worked, all right? Mine being blown by the comb over. I, I, I remember, he, so he had a, a hearing aid. And we, I remember sitting in, in Dairy Queen on multiple occasions where he thought he was being discreet, all right? Probably saying something a little bit inappropriate or um, let's just say something that lacked maybe some grace about somebody who was nearby. And he thought he was being discreet, but his ear aid was not up high enough and he was very loud and everybody could hear him, right? And <laughs> the jokes that me and my brother still tell about the things that he would say and not realize that everybody could hear him, right? I can remember, um, you know, messing with him because he had this ear aid. And I'd be like, hey, grandpa, and he thought his hearing aid was cutting out, so then he'd start adjusting it, and then he would catch on and know what was happening. So then he would like ag us on, and then even thump us really hard because that's what he would do. He had this saying, "Boy, I'm gonna cloud up and rain all over you." All right, that's what he would do, and then he would thump you. All right, <laughs> so, and I have all these all these incredible memories. I can remember one time of getting locked out of a car or house or something, and getting this long lecture on how you should have a spare key, and always he was always talking about being prepared for things. And, it's, and I have all these great memories with my grandfather father. And so much of it is because we had this tradition of haircuts with grandpa. If that tradition is not in place, that intimate relationship is different. I have no doubt that I had that, that, I mean, even growing up in, and I've told stories about him before, growing up in the high school and the relationship that we had was so deep because of that tradition and it locked in an intimacy. It built, it was a time, a constant experience that was set apart that built a relationship with my grandfather. Traditions shape us. They mold us. They, they, they shape our relationships. They bring us into deeper intimacy with those we are around. I can remember being in college, not yet a father, but knowing that one day I really wanted to be. And I was at this, this conference about church leadership. And one of the breakout sessions was about parenting. And I was like, oh, I'm going to that. So I, I, the, the main session ended. I sprinted to this thing. I don't remember anything about that conference. I can't tell you the speakers, what they said, but I remember sitting in this little classroom in a breakout session where this guy is talking about fatherhood. 
And he wasn't, it wasn't like a sermon. It wasn't even, I don't even think he used the Bible. He was just kind of giving these principles. And one of the things he talked about was traditions. Talked about how important it is for a parent to create traditions for their kids because of how it builds intimacy and bonding in the family. I can look at traditions I have with my family. I can look at, see the proof of that. It's the only thing I remember from this conference. Today, we talk about a means of grace. It goes by a number of different names, Holy Communion, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. They all refer to the most central act of corporate worship in which Christians partake. You'll hear me say this a number of times today, probably, okay? It's more central to corporate worship than even preaching on Sunday, It's more central to corporate worship than even the songs we sing. We're talking about this communion. If you look back and you look at the history of the church, it doesn't matter what denomination. You have Catholics and Protestants. You've got Baptists and Methodists, Pentecostal. Sure, there's all these different variations and different forms and beliefs of communion, but the truth is all who follow Jesus understand and hold to this central act of worship of receiving communion. It is a life-shaping, grace-distributing act of worship that is to be practiced regularly, a set-apart experience that draws us into deeper intimacy with the one who can change our life. John Wesley taught that it was the grand channel whereby the grace of of his spirit was conveyed to the souls of all the children of God. This act of worship carries such weight because it was instituted by Jesus. We have all these means of grace, but, uh, but there's a couple things we call sacraments, right? And instead of, if you're not Catholic, you're Protestant, okay, if you're going to look at the church history. And Catholics have many, but Protestants have two sacraments, two things that they consider holy that Jesus both did and called us to do, baptism and communion, right? It holds to this high standard, this being set apart experience and act of worship, Jesus institute, instituted this process. And I think, that, I think that if we put it into perspective, it can give weight to why it's so important to the church. A lot of times when we think about the Last Supper and we think about Jesus and going to the cross and that whole experience, we tend to lean on the divinity of Jesus. We think about his godness, right? You have God, he, Jesus was 100% God and 100% human. And so this morning, what I want to kind of do is I want to focus on his humanness and see how it adds weight to this idea of communion. Jesus knew he was going to die. He knew that was what tomorrow held. He knew that he was going to be tortured, humiliated, and and murdered for crimes and for being a criminal that he wasn't. And he knew it was happening tomorrow. Yes, he was 100% God, but he chose to empty himself. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So his godness doesn't make the pain any less painful. I think so often we think about the divinity of Jesus and we think, yeah, he went through all of that stuff, but he was God, so it couldn't have been as bad as it would have been for me. But that is not true. 
His godness did not make the pain any less painful, the humiliation any less humiliating, the torture any more easy. Jesus went through that and he experienced it to the fullness of his extent, of its extent. Have you ever been betrayed by somebody? Like really, like stabbed in the back by somebody. Maybe it was a friend or a spouse or a parent. I can remember being in college and and I had this uh, kind of core group of friends, so much so that like we, uh, I brought six of them home with me the first time I came home from college, right? Uh, I brought all of them. We all road trip together. We came home. We all went to church. We went back to school. Like I had this, this group of friends that I was really close with. And there was kind of this idea that I would end up dating one of those girls that was in that group. I didn't, okay? I actually ended up liking this other girl that wasn't a part of that core six, And I can remember as soon as we started dating, having these people, not all of them, okay, not all of them, but having this, some people in my life who I considered dear friends immediately become the source of untrue rumors of my new relationship. And I remember saying like how, being so angry, right? And when I look back, it was kind of like petty college, like we were young, people said things, but I remember that pain. And I think there's some of us in this room that know a betrayal that's even more deep than that. You know the pain of having someone have your love and trust and completely crush it. Jesus spent years of his life loving, sacrificing, and pouring into a man who would betray him for money who would later kiss him in the garden, betray him to his face, and deliver him over to enemy soldiers. His godness didn't make that pain any less painful. The whipping he went through wasn't any easier. He wasn't tougher because he was God. As they hammered those nails through his feet and wrist, he felt the full anguish of that pain. He was human and he experienced the the agony of suffocating by hanging on a cross because he lost strength to lift himself up to continue to breathe. Jesus went through that. He felt all of that. He knew the pain and suffering as he walked through the crowd and they mocked him and they spit on him. He knew the pain as they whipped him. He knew every ounce that he went through. And here we find him the day before it happens. We see him in the garden. He knows it's coming. He's praying that that God will take the cup from him, crying tears of blood. And now he has this moment where he's the night before. He knows what's coming. And he chooses to share a meal with his closest friends. What would you do? What would you do if you knew that was your reality tomorrow? Like, like, seriously, like, school's canceled, work is closed. Tomorrow, everybody is gathering in the square because you're going to be pulled through town and tortured and murdered in front of all of them. If, that, if you knew that was your reality tomorrow, what would you do tonight? What would, what would you plan for this evening? As I thought about this for my own life, I I found myself being much like Jesus. I would have a meal with my family, my wife and my kids, 
probably my siblings and parents too. Honestly, if I knew it was my last night, I'd want them all there. I'm an extrovert, okay? And I would want to communicate to them, especially I thought about, I mean, I I started crying when I was writing it. Like I thought about my kids. If I knew I was not going to be there for my children growing up, what would I want to communicate to them? I would want them to know how much I really loved them. I would want them to know that even though I'm going to be gone, I want them to keep moving forward. I want them to love God, to pursue the life he has for them, to tell others about him. I would want them to keep on going. And I I would want them to remember me. I would want them to remember the love that I have for them. And that's what Jesus does. He's communicating. He, he takes of this meal, this, this tradition that Israel has, this Passover meal, and he shares it with his closest family, communicating to them, remember this. Remember my love that I have for you. Keep going. Jesus knows all that lays ahead for him tomorrow, and he spends the last evening participating in an old tradition the Passover meal, but he takes it to a deeper level. He institutes a new practice, a new tradition, not just for Israel, but for the church as a whole. He says in Mark 14, 25, truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You see what he's doing? He's taking this tradition this tradition that was for Israel, and he's making it more full, maybe even fulfilled. He's drawing himself into this moment. He's inviting our story as followers of Jesus into the story of Israel. Do you know what the Passover meal was? I think if you've spent time in church, you probably do. I'm going to talk about it anyway, okay? So stay focused. You ever have a story you feel like you need to tell, and the person's like, oh, I've heard this story, and you feel like you got to tell it anyway? That's where I'm at. So I'm telling the story, all right? Jesus' people are being oppressed. God's people are being oppressed, all right? Israel is in captivity. They are slaves. They are oppressed, persecuted, captivated, and they are crying out for God's deliverance. They are crying out to be free from the Egyptian government. They want to be their own people, and they spend generations crying out to God, and then he answers. He answers by raising up a leader in Moses, right? And Moses goes, and he's the speaker for the people, and he goes goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And you know the story. Pharaoh with his hard heart does not say yes. He argues with Moses. He refuses Moses' command and you get the plagues. We we know the plagues with the the locusts and the frogs and the river of blood and they all kind of play out and they get to this climax. They get to this point where where you have the the most terrible plague that I can even think of. And and I read this story in scripture and it it makes me, it breaks my heart and I question, I'm like, God, why would you do this? It's one of the hardest parts of scripture for me as a believer. But there's this moment where God has this plague where, where all the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, all the firstborn males of each household are going to die. But it doesn't have to be that way. See, it, it, this may be the result of this plague, but God provides a covering. He provides a way to life. 
the death of a perfect lamb and that lamb's blood spread over the doorway and the covering of the blood of that perfect lamb allows all in that house to continue forward in life. Ignoring the God of the Bible, refusing his command results in death, but following him and putting the blood over your doorsteps results in life. It leads to life. So the plague hits mourning and grief and the reality of the power of the God of Israel hits Pharaoh's house and Pharaoh is done. He feels the weight and the might of the God of the Bible. He calls to Moses and says, get out. Get the people out of my kingdom. Leave only to chase them as they go. You know how the story plays out. They're running from Pharaoh. He doesn't want to catch them and put them back into captivity. He wants to catch them and take their life. It's going to be a slaughter. They are running for their lives. And they get to the Red Sea. Moses parts the Red Sea and God delivers them on dry ground while taking care of their enemies. And you have this story of Israel being, being, led, being led out of death into life and being led out of captivity into freedom. And then they institute this meal, this, this tradition, where all the different aspects of this meal, the, the meat is lamb, the, the wine, the bread, every little part of the way the bread's cooked, it all has a story. So when they sit down every year to share this meal, each item that is on the table tells a part of the story of Israel being skipped over, the, 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 the Spirit of the Lord passing over their house because of the covering of the blood of the Lamb and being delivered out of Egypt into freedom. So you've got this story of being out of death into life, out of captivity into freedom. And this story is told every year as they share this meal. So generations and generations removed from that instant still know the weight and the love of their delivering God because of this tradition. Jesus takes this meal and he gives it not, not a new meaning, but a, as I said earlier, a more full meaning. He is teaching that his church, his church, he is the lamb whose blood has been shed for their covering. It is his body that is broken that will lead to life. When we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we remember we remember Jesus is our redeemer and our deliverer. The same way, the same way that God led Israel from death to life, from captivity to freedom, Jesus does that for us. When we participate in receiving communion, it's not just you and the meal. It's you, you're, not, you're not in a group individually participating. We participate together. You're in the church with your church family, and you're participating not just with your church family, but with ever, every Christian who has ever partaken in this meal. And not just those who follow Christ, but those who were before him. You become a part. Israel's story becomes a part of our story. As we partake in the bread and the cup, we realize that we are a part of the grand narrative of all of Scripture, that the story of the God who delivers and redeems is our story. We participate with every follower of Christ who has ever partaken. 
So we're talking about it as a means of grace, right? The Lord's Supper, it, it's, so, it's more central. It's more central than even the, the sermons that I preach or you hear on Sundays or the songs you sing. Because it's not just ear witness. It is something we actively do. It's something we witness with our eyes, with our hands. We can taste it. You can smell it. And we remember in the same way that God delivered Israel from the grips of Egypt, Christ has delivered us from the grips of sin and death. This meal represents the senses just like the meal of the Passover that God established for the Israelites. This meal is not something we do for Jesus. It is something that Jesus has done for us. And it becomes something we do with Jesus. We participate with him in it. I want to look at this participating for just a moment, right? Because when we think about remembering, he says, do this in remembrance of me. We think about recalling a memory, right? Like I could tell you the stories that I had with, with the, the haircuts with grandpa because I'm recalling those memories. But remembering is not just recalling. It's not just the recalling of something that happened in the past. It's something more, and it's especially something more when it comes to communion, See, we opened up with Corinthians 11, but before Paul ever gets to Corinthians 11, if we turn the page backwards to 1 Corinthians 10, we see Paul as he's, as he's building up to this moment in, in uh, chapter 11. If we go and we read part of chapter 10, I think we will see something significant in the idea of this participating. So if we go back, you can just turn back one page. It's 1 Corinthians 10. I'm going to read verse, verses 16 through 22. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body. And since all of us share the one bread, consider the people of Israel. Do those who eat as sacrifices participate in the altar? What am I saying then? The food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that they sacrifice. They sacrifice to demons and not to God. <clears throat> I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the table, in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul is writing, we see in the beginning of this letter in Corinthians that Paul is writing to the church. He is writing to a group of believers. And inside this group of believers, there are some people making uh, sacrifices to idols and other things. And so Paul is kind of drawing this line between living a life that sets a table for demons and living a life that sets a table for Christ. And in doing this, he calls us sharers. He calls those who are in the church sharers, who partake in this cup and this bread, sharers, partakers, participants. He doesn't want us to be participating with demons. He, he, call, he uses these words that are, are words of action. 
Just like last week, we talked about the Bible itself is not the means of grace, right? It's the searching of scriptures through hearing and reading and meditating. It's that searching that allows it to become a channel of grace in our life. Communion is the same way. It's not the bread and the the juice or the bread and the wine that is the means of grace. It is the receiving of communion. It's the action of partaking, of sharing, that allows it to channel the grace of God into our lives. John Wesley emphasized this by talking about the encounter of the Holy Spirit in the midst of communion. He says that he, that without God's presence through the power of the Spirit, the bread and wine remain just bread and wine. But with the Spirit, they become the body and the blood of Christ for us. Tony Evans explains it like this. Communion is not just recalling something in the past, but rather our participation based on the past with something in the present. Communion is not just about recalling something in the past, but about a participation in the present based on a past reality. We know that because of Jesus, that Israel's story is our story, that he is our redeemer. And based on that truth, we participate now with Christ in the act of receiving communion. And Paul doesn't mince words. He, he talks about, makes it very clear that there's two ways of participating. This participa- the participation, it's, it's a, in contrast. You can drink of the cup of the Lord or the cup of demons. And you can share the table of the Lord or the table of demons. There are two types of sharing here. We, as we navigate life, are communing with demons, are communing with the Lord. So many of us wonder why even though we are believing Christians, even though we go to church on Sunday, even though we can check off all the lists where we're doing the things pretty good that we're supposed to, reading the Bible, praying, all these things, but we wonder why there's still certain areas in our life that it seems like Satan still holds so much power and ground in the things we do. It seems like there's areas in our life where we can't find victory. So many of us wonder why this is, but when we take a step back and we look at the reality as we come to church and we sit at the table of the Lord on Sundays, but the rest of the week in those areas of our lives, we are setting the table to dine with demons. And that sounds harsh, but the reality is true. Jesus' death and resurrection gave us power over sin and death. The only reason that sin or death has any power in our lives is because we give it to it. We forfeit the power to them. They don't have it. They don't deserve it. They don't have it. Jesus is more powerful than anything. But we forfeit the power to them by setting the table and dining with demons. The table is not about food. If you think about someone in your life, right? We talked about this a little bit last week. If you have somebody that you talk to on the phone or you pass in the hallway, the second you bring them in and invite them to a meal, that, that relationship goes to another level. Sharing a meal together is not about the food. It's about the people you are with. Has anybody ever shared a meal with somebody that's mad at you? I had this experience yesterday. <laughs> I uh, met the the wife and the kids for lunch, and uh, the wife was mad at me, and we're sitting there at the table, and we're eating, and as we're eating our sandwiches, it is completely silent, and I'm like, this is uncomfortable, all right, so we're eating, 
There's no conversation happening. It's like, this is not what a meal's supposed to be like. And you can like feel the tension. Like you can feel that there's something wrong. There's something that needs to be talked about. We need to kind of, you know, okay. If you've ever been in this situation, you know that if you're sharing a meal with somebody that's mad at you, that a meal is not about the food. The food's important. It gives us energy and nutrition and all those things. But when you're sharing a meal with somebody, it's about the person you're sharing the meal with. That's the weight of the table. That's what happens around the table. That's what happens in traditions while they carry weight because they bring us into intimacy with those we are sharing the time with. This is how the Lord's Supper becomes a means of grace for us. Communion channels grace to us by allowing us to partner or participate in a meal with Christ. It opens up the door to allow the grace of God to pull us into deeper intimacy and deeper holiness with Christ. What are the areas in your life where you're still giving Satan power? Where are the tables that you have set for the enemy? You know the story, Jesus walks into the temple. As he walks into the temple, he sees the merchants who have turned God's house into a den of thieves. And Jesus' response is to flip the tables and chase the merchants out of the house of God. What are the areas in your life where you have set the table for the enemy? When we participate in communion, we're pulling up a chair and saying we're sharing a meal with the one who flips the tables of the enemy. There are places in your life where Jesus is entering in, ready to turn those tables that you have set for the demons over because he wants to dine with you. And when we share communion, we participate in a meal with our Savior, our Deliverer, who moves us from life to moves us from death to life and from captivity Captivity to freedom, captivity to freedom, power over sin. That's what we're talking about, living and walking in holiness and sharing communion is a reminder each and every time we take it that we are participating with the one who leads to freedom. The sin in our life doesn't have power over us. It doesn't. Whenever we fall into that temptation, it's because we have given the power to Sin. We have to stop setting the table for the enemy and share the table with our risen Savior whose body was broken for us, whose blood was shed for us. Where am I at? (laughs) Bread and wine are food that can nourish our bodies. But the bread and wine are just that, unless the power of the Holy Spirit communicates the power of Christ in us. The bread and wine of the sacrament are meant to be the food for our souls that gives us strength to believe, strength to love, and strength to obey. That's how communion becomes a means of grace in our lives. So how often should we partake in communion? The uh, communion has this mysterious power. There's a, and early on in church tradition, they actually would have anybody who was a non-believer or even a new believer who hasn't gone through catechism, which is just like the new basics of Christianity, it's the new believers class. And if you hadn't been through that, you weren't allowed to partake in it 
at the beginnings of the church because it held this mysterious power that actually got them persecuted because people heard them talking about eating bodies and drinking blood and it became a main talking point for persecuting the church. And the reason they did this is because there's a certain mystery about partaking in communion. And this mystery is what makes it kind of complicated to understand. Like how does bread and juice become presence with literally presence with Christ? It's hard to explain. (laughs) But the truth is the last verse in our text today says that for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For as often. It's clear that this is supposed to be a tradition, one that is done regularly in the church, just like haircuts with grandpa. That as we look back, it shapes us and molds us and molds our relationship with the Savior who died for us. Jesus, when he says, do this in remembrance of me, the idea here is that his command is ongoing. We don't just do this one time and consider it to be the end of it. Instead, Jesus expects us to do this over and over again. It's supported in Scripture by the frequency that we see the Lord's Supper celebrated in the, in the Acts of the Apostles. And I firmly believe that if we want to be faithful to the command of Christ, we should receive the Lord's Supper as often as possible. This has been a point of conviction for me (laughs) because the Lord's Supper is something we do as a church family. You can read your Bible and meditate and listen to sermons at home all you want to, but partaking in communion is something we do here as a body of believers. So if we do it once every, (laughs) what, not even every few months, once a year, so kind of where we've been at, it's not enough. That's not what scripture teaches and it's not what we're supposed to do. So uh, our denomination requires it once a quarter. This is actually a a tradition that comes from the fact that um, our denomination says that you should be ordained to administer the elements. All right, that's what, it's a point of debate, okay. But that's what, so so when it was formed, they had circuit writers, uh, the congregations were spread all through all the United States and even England when it first started. And so there was not a way to, to do communion very often. So it was required once a quarter where somebody who was ordained would be at your church to help you administer them. That's not enough. Once a quarter is not enough. Um, so what we're going to do as a church is we're going to begin having the Lord's Supper communion once a month. Um, it's going to be it's going to be a process. I'm not going to be preaching about it once a month, okay? But we've actually kind of already started. If you came to the stations in December, that means you had communion in November, December, and now January, okay? So what we're going to try to do is do this once a month. And once we kind of figure the logistics of it out and how making it, it's running smoothly, we'll do it for a while. My ultimate goal is to have the most central act of worship for the church and its history to be a central act of worship for us every week where we will partake in communion every week. It's that important, and it carries that much weight. Now, it's something we're going to work to logistically. Okay, so for right now, what we're going to start doing is having communion once a month. It's an important tradition that builds that bond, that builds that, brings that relationship to be more intimate. It joins our story with Israel's story. It's instituted by Jesus, and it is a participation with him as he has remembering that he has delivered us from death to life and from captivity to freedom.